Uh, let me read this, and then uh, we'll just take it where we where the Spirit of God leads us. First Corinthians thirteen, verse ten. Let's go. Let's let's actually go back one verse. Go go to verse nine. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. How many of you know that you? Let me say it this way. How many of you know that we don't know everything? Can I get an amen on that? This creates a very vulnerable atmosphere. Even to, and I, I, by the way, I acknowledge you and I want to thank you for even responding to that statement. And I know it seems odd that anyone would, would say that they know everything, but we may say that we don't know everything, but we certainly live as if we do. And that creates an unteachable heart. A heart that cannot be moved into a level of understanding that may actually be further and farther along than where you were prior. The humility of God is very, very important. The humility of God may not be what we think it is. It's not meekness in the terms of, you know, somebody who's got an emotional, very kind of quiet disposition or something like that. A meek person is someone who understands who they are. And so Paul is, is humble. He's saying, listen, we, we prophesy in part. We engage the Spirit in part because we only know in part. But that is changing, right? That is changing every day. And he goes on and he says, but when that which is perfect or perfected, when that has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. Now, if you read that, and certainly if you read that from a, kind of an eschatological perspective or end-time perspective or any of those things, it seems like what Paul is saying is that we know in part now, but at some point in the future, and in your mind, whether it's subconscious or conscious, your mind is saying that when all these bad things happen and Jesus returns and restores everything, we're going to know everything and be perfected. But that's not what he is saying. That might be what you are interpreting. But what he is saying is what he's saying is, but that which is perfect, because I want to come back to Ephesians. We were there last week, and I know um, many of you maybe were not here last week. We had the encounter and all that, so I may have to go back and, and look at certain things. But in Ephesians, it talks about us coming to a place of perfection, to the full measure and stature of Jesus Christ. Remember that. That's why the gifts are given to the church, the apostle, the prophet, the pastor, the teacher, all of that, the evangelists, are given for what? The perfection of the saints. Perfection or being perfect is not not never doing something that's wrong. Perfection is letting the process run its course. The process of salvation to run its course. Okay, so just, just highlight some of these things in your mind and we'll see how these things all fit together as we move along this morning. Verse 11, it goes on like this. He says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. What is the then referring to? Is it referring to a climactic end of the age that, that is preceded by an Armageddon type event and all this stuff, and I know we've been through a lot of this this year, the early part of the year and all that, but it is so strong in its influence 
that it might take what Paul is saying is for today and have you put it out somewhere in the distant future. The word then here in verse 12 is referring to the last verse, verse 11, when it's talking about when I became a man or when I was matured. Are you seeing the context of this? He's saying, when I was immature, I spoke like an immature. And he's not, he's not being derogatory. He says, when I was a child, I spoke, like, I spoke like a child. I understood as a child. And it was expected of me to be that way when I was a child. But then there is a place and a time when I am actually mature. And I come into another place of, if, if I can say this, of reality. I, I, I'm taking my time with this because what he's about to say is profound. When you have a child, we have grandchildren now, we have a bunch of them, and they're, yes we do, that's right, and we love them. And, you know, Austin's just about learning how to uh, walk, and he's holding on and everything, and so he'll release that and fall. It is not our disposition looking at Austin when he's doing that and say, what a failure. Right? That'd be absurd. That'd almost be like parental abuse, right? You would never think that way. But if you had a grown-up who's 20 or 30-some-odd years old and he kept dropping every time he tried to walk, well, either, you're not that you would make fun of the person, but you would say, hey, something's wrong. Right? Why? Because it is not consistent with their expected level of maturity. So when you're a child, you do childish things, and that's fine. But there's a place when you move out of that. Right? So look what he says. Let's go back to verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Then meaning in maturity, not when you die. Then face to face, now I know in part, but then, and this is the thing that should grip your heart. He says, then I shall know just as I also am known. Wow. Wow. I could almost say this with maybe a guarantee, and I, but I won't say it with a guarantee. With a great degree of confidence that we don't know ourselves as God sees ourselves. Paul is saying that the sign of maturity is not you healing the sick, yet we Go after that. We love that. And esteem those who engage that. That's not the sign of maturity. The sign of maturity is not when you can fast for 10 days or 30 days or 40 days because we look at them and we consider these people who can do that holy. The sign of maturity isn't what you do in the context of ministry. The sign of maturity is to be known as you are known. Wow. The truth is, is that you really cannot love people unless you love yourself. And you can't love yourself unless you have a revelation or an understanding of God's love for you. Is this making sense? And Paul makes this statement that there's a place in our walk where we will know who we are as we are in the past tense known. In other words, God has always known you in a certain way. He didn't know you, He didn't change His knowing when you did something. 
He says, you will know as you are already known. Last week we, we, we covered, uh, well we covered a bunch of things, but one of the areas that I, I feel I want to repeat a little bit is this structure of the temple. And bear with me, I know if we don't, you know, some people kind of check out when we start to look at some things like that in detail, but there's, 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 there's a message in this that is very, very important. <clears throat> and, and Moses is given specific instructions to build the tabernacle at that time, which is a portable temple. They would break it down. Or they would erect it when they were in a place where, where they were going to stay for a while. And then when they moved, they tore it down and they moved to another place and they would erect it again. Eventually, when they came into the promised land and the nation of Israel was actually uh, revealed or, or established, that tabernacle became what? The temple on the Mount of Zion in Jerusalem. Okay? And I think we all pretty much know the structure by and large, it was three major compartments. There was what the outer court, right? The outer court was where anyone could pretty much assemble. And then there was the inner court. And then there was this very special place called what? The Holy of Holies. What was special about this place? That's where God lived. Now, I want you to under I want I want you to go back two thousand years. And if you can, I want you to think like a Hebrew person would think. In fact, do this. Actually, don't do this. Let me turn to uh, Psalm 102. I want, I want to read this real quick for you. In Psalm 102, verse 19, it says this. For he looked, speaking of God, he looked down from the height of his sanctuary. From heaven, the Lord viewed the earth. I can show you a dozen scriptures that are indicative that from the Jewish or the Hebrew mindset, heaven wasn't what we think in the 21st century in a very Western-influenced culture than what they thought thousands of years ago. What they thought heaven was, was what? The Holy of Holies. It says He looked down from the sanctuary. Where was God in the sanctuary? The Holy of Holies. From heaven, He viewed what? The earth. So, so you have to understand what God had in mind here. He's building a micro model of the cosmos. Of all creation is in the temple. And He gives the temple to a people and with it a covenant to steward that model because that model is going to mean something very profound in years to come. But the Holy of Holies was where the what is called the glory of God or the Shekinah presence of God resided. It was always there. Not only when the priest went in once a year. It always was there. It's just that man had limited access. And only through ritual. And if you would, through religion. And he would bring and represent all the people, even entire nation, when he entered into that Holy of Holies. When he was about to enter on that one day, he would have to take off all of his clothes, all of the priestly garments that the people saw on him 
as he entered into the holy place, in the holy place he would have to disrobe. And he would have linen, just linen, a linen robe. And then he would go in vulnerable. Because he went in representing people. But when he came out, he was adorned with all of this, all of the, 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 the turban and, and the breastplate, all of that was to represent God to the people. But when he was in the holy place, he represented people to God. He played two roles. He was the in-between. He was the intercessor. He was the bridge between heaven and, come on now, earth. The Holy of Holies was had, had, had what? The Ark of the Covenant in it. It was gold. It was made of wood, but it was gold inlay. The angels on top were created from one block of gold. This all speaks of the glory of the incorruptibility of the immortality and the eternality of the presence of God. That God had to show man who He was, but man who was limited in his dimensional experience, he can deal with three dimensions, he can think about four, and he can fantasize about others, but he can only really relate to a very few set of dimensions. He had to show himself in that dimensional space. Of these compartments, the Holy of Holies was the only one that was in a perfect cube. Meaning this, the height, the width, and the length were of the same height. It was 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high, 20 cubits long. Speaking of perfection, the outer court was of different dimensions. And it was not a cube. And the inner court, or the Holy of Holies, is the same. So when the Jewish mindset, in their mindset, when they looked at the hill in Jerusalem, and they saw the temple, they saw where God lives. They did not see God the way we might, or we may might, as in this ethereal place called heaven. I will say this, and this probably requires more detailed teaching that we might need to do during the week, but most of our concept of heaven, even those of our concept of hell, comes from mythological treaties that are born out of the Greco-Roman time. It, it, it's, a lot of it is just coming out of people who are not even in relationship with God. Got concepts of Elysium. You got concepts of Hades. You got, you got all these, the, you know, the seven levels of hell and the river sticks. All this stuff is concocted in the mind of man. So you have this perfect cube. In the perfect cube is what? The Ark of the Covenant. On the Ark is the mercy seat. That is the judgment realm of God. And He chooses to name it based on how He's about to judge. With mercy. Mercy is a judgment. We don't think of it that way. We think judgment is always you got to do some jail time. No, a judgment to say... You are absolved. You are freed. You, you, your, your, your payment has been made. That's a judgment. Mercy is a judgment. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. So you got this perfected model, and in it are angels, and in it are are, are is decorations with blue and and purple to represent the heavens and the heaven of heavens and 
everything in the holy place was of the heavenly realm. When you moved out into the holy place and into the outer courts, it was decorated, specifically the holy place, it was decorated with intention to look like the earth. There were palm trees. It says it in the Word. There, there are pomegranates. There are plants. There are birds that are decorating that place. Why? Because in the temple is heaven and earth. That God from His sanctuary was looking at the earth. Are you saying that? God said this. Pay attention to this model. And He gives it to a people and they over time abuse it. And they, and they abuse it to, in certain cases, to the extreme. If you actually study what was going on in the temple. Particularly, you can even go back in the early part of Israel's history with Phineas and, and how, uh, how they, they were uh, distorted then. And it got even worse in the days of Jesus. The economy was based off of money minted in the temple. They were, they were exchanged. This is why when Jesus goes in and He turns the tables he, and in righteous anger, what He is saying, what he's, what he's actually prophetically doing, is that He is causing a change in the realm of the heaven and earth. There was such corruption that was brought in because they lost sight of what it meant. And religion set in and they used that to actually, to their lusts, to, to gain whatever they wanted. And the ones who were given stewardship over the covenant and over the temple became, for the most part, people of corruption. This is what Jesus is dealing with with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Not all of them. Nicodemus, we know we got... He's not, he's not upset, if you would, or angry with the individual. He's angry with the fact that you have this level of... of this grievous level of lust and stuff that has contaminated the very model that he's about to express. Are you following? Paul in two places, in Ephesians and in Colossians, talks about the sons of disobedience and how the day of wrath is reserved for those. And then he goes on and he describes the sons of disobedience, those who commit fornication, those who lie, those all these things. And we just assume sons of disobedience are people who just... Are everyone who is not a Christian. But that's a 21st century understanding of something that was written 2,000 years ago. For you to be a son of disobedience, you must have been given something to obey. Right? And if you were given something to obey, then in that culture it had to be the law. So the sons of disobedience are not everyone... It is those who were given the covenant and violated that covenant through their own lust. They were given the temple and they allowed their own lust to overwhelm them so that they lost sight. And all that fornication, all that sin became so commonplace within the construct of the temple that he says there's a day of wrath reserved for you. That day of wrath is not judgment as we might know it. For them, in specific context, for them it was the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. That day was a very specific day. He says, that day has been reserved for those sons of disobedience, not because God is just angry, but God had to kill an old system so that the new one would emerge. Does that make sense? Now we can delve into this in great detail. Clearly not here. 
And maybe some other time. And we have in past Sundays. But I want to review this because something happens at the end of this book that is so amazing and, and, and such an amazing chapter in this love story that we will although we may not even pay attention to it because we don't have the context of what God is doing and what He has done. Because you ought to know who you are as you are known. Not as you want to be known. Not as you expect to be known. But as you... God already knows you in a certain way. This is why Paul makes this very hard comment in the book of Corinthians. He says, I no longer will regard anyone according to what? The flesh. No longer will I even regard Jesus in the flesh. Come on! What the world are you talking about, Paul? Paul had a revelation that I am now engaging a realm of the Spirit. That my spirit, man, is predominant. It is not, I'm not a flesh with the Spirit. I am a spirit with flesh. It's a big difference. We compartmentalize the body, soul, and spirit as if they are equal. They're not. When God breathed His rock into Adam, He put His Spirit into man. Before man became mud that was flesh, he became spirit that was in God. Alright? So we got this cube. And we got everything outside the cube. And, and, and they would look at the temple and they would refer to that as heaven and earth. It's where God looks down to, from the earth, to the earth, from heaven, right? And it's perfect. And the divider between perfection and imperfection was a veil. It was a curtain. That curtain, Chris, according to the ancient Hebrew writings, would have had embroidered into it these enormous angels. I've seen pictures where there were two enormous angels embroidered in the veil that some, even Josephus say, was the width of a man's hand. About five inches. Thick. Continuous. A continuous veil, five inches thick, embroidered with angelic beings. Two angelic beings. That when the priest went in, come on now, the priest literally had to walk through the veil. There was no separation. There was no opening. That thing was sealed to protect what was in from what was without. That what they, what they, once the, once the priest went into the holy place, he would minister to the table of showbread, to the, to, to the uh, candlestick and, and to the altar of incense. And if you would, mystically, walk through the veil. And he would wind up in heaven. And in heaven, he was in front and in the presence of the Shekinah. And the, Shekinah, the glory of God is what illuminated the Holy of Holies. Uh, I want you to get this image. This is amazing. This is why they cherished it. This is also why they looked down on every other people group and the Gentiles at large as almost being subhuman because they had God. Think about that. They had God. He's, he's here. He's in our nation. And if we have to fight, we'll have the priests go get that ark, 
come out and march in front of the army. Because every time that happens, we win. Think about the, the, the mindset of a people who are, they felt, oh, we're special. And that feeling overwhelmed them and then they became very uh, corrupted out of that. Those are the sons of disobedience. The wrath that Jesus is speaking of in Matthew 13, the wrath that Paul speaks of leading up to all of this stuff is written prior to 70 A.D. All it was, there's a day coming when that temple must be removed. Jesus prophesies, right? You know things are bad. Is Austin here? Austin's not here. My grandson, oh, there he is. He's, does he have his head? They, they, you know it's bad when I'm screaming and they, my grandson has to wear headsets because so, Pop is screaming. I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> Listen, I, I get excited about this stuff. <laughs> um, he's sleeping, actually. That's amazing. Oh, he has his, he has his head thing. I'm, I'm, right. I'm waking him up. Ah, where was I? Any of you listening? <laughs> what? Take the Spiritual pride. Yeah, there you go. Spiritual pride. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so... so no, Jesus prophesied. And he says, He says, I will destroy this temple. And I, actually, it will be destroyed, and I will rebuild it in three days. What is he rebuilding? The model of what? Come on. If the, if the temple is heaven and earth, and he's saying this model that has been corrupted by the lust of man, by those given an older covenant, I will rebuild it, the same model, it's heaven and earth, but I'm building it under the basis of a new covenant. And under that covenant, man has no ability to actually engage in corruption because it ain't going to have anything to do with man. The only man that's going to be involved with this is Jesus, the Son of Man. This, oh, come on, this is... this. In three days, I'm going to renew heaven and earth. I'm going to rebuild it. And our concept of access to God, and our concepts of stewardship of the earth, and therefore our concept of our identity, will come from that new heaven and new earth. Does that make sense? You will know yourself as you are already known. Not based on what is old, but what has been new. Behold, all things in the past are, are gone. You are a new creation. You are citizens of a heaven and an earth that were not built by the hand of man. Okay? The only other place the cube shows up is in the book of Revelation chapter 21. Go to Revelation chapter 21. This is completely off text, but the Holy Spirit wants us to go here. So we will accommodate. Amen. Amen. Verse Chapter 21, verse 1. Now, if you think Revelation has yet to happen, this ain't going to make sense to you. persuasion. And I'm open. We know in part. I'm open to ideas and correction. In fact, I got here by being open to ideas and correction. 
that everything that we put in the future, in fact, could very well be in the past, as it relates to eschatology. And the reason for that is several. The main reason are all the time texts. Am I, am I going out? The time texts that are both at the beginning of the book of Revelation and the end of the book of Revelation saying twice, these things must happen quickly. Why would you even put that there if quickly is 2,000 years? Oh, but a day is a thousand years. But a thousand years is also as a day. We only quote half of that to support our position. Right? So if on the cross what was done was more than just the eradication of sin, it was there. But what happened in the high hour? In that temple. That one continuous veil with angels on it. What were those angels, by the way? There are, there are two angels that I've seen. Now, you gotta go back to the Talmud and find. They're enormous angels, the length and the height of the temple. The holiest of holies, the holy of holies, was also paradise was also the realm in which God communed with Adam in the cool of the day. What was guarding the way to that tree that was in the middle of that location? Two angels. Angels. Cherubim with fiery swords. They were not guarding the tree as much they were guarding what? The way to the tree. Right? Jesus says, I am, come on. He says, I'm about to tell those angels to retire. They are no longer needed on their assignment. Access to the presence of God that has been relegated to a specific people and in that specific people, a certain sect and in that sect, a certain person and in that person, only once a year. He said, I'm about to change everything. And when that veil was rent, those two angels were relieved. When Jesus is in the tomb, and they came in, and, 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 and they explained what was happening, there was one angel at the feet, and one angel at the head. They were the same angels that were guarding the way to life, are now guarding the very way which is in the body that has now been resurrected. What was now, oh come on, what the, the everything was removed. This is what Paul says, when you were an enemy, I reconciled you. And we wind up in, in Revelation 21 and he says, verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Come on! I'm not waiting for that anymore. I want to live in that now. He goes, For the first heaven, and the first earth has passed away. God's wrath was against a system that was corrupting people from truth. I have to, he said, I have to remove that. My son has now made a way to life. By the way, we have this idea that if anybody fulfilled the law, 
that all of a sudden the law is not effective. There's nowhere in the scriptures that ever say anything like that. Where did it go? Jesus fulfilled the law so the law was no longer needed. Please help me. Find, find out for me. The fact that you go to college and complete four years doesn't provide the, the reason to do away with the college. Alright, I don't know why I said this. The law was the best that man can do while the angels are still guarding the way. As long as there are angels guarding the way to what? Truth. Life. The tree of life. The best you can do to get to God was some moral behavior. And man failed miserably over and over and over and over again. Okay? Jesus is the way. The angels are disbanded and the veil is rent. Not so God can come out. That we are brought in. John 17, Father, as I'm in you, and you are in me, let them be in us, in your house, in your presence, in your Shekinah, that you who are known, that you may know, that you may know as you are known. What if, and I put this out as a challenge. Challenge to me, a challenge to you, a challenge to everyone who hears the sound of my voice. What if we began to deal with people the way Paul suggested we should? That we would regard no man according to the flesh. Wow. What if, what if, Chris and Rebecca, that I saw you the way God sees you and therefore my interaction with you is based on that bridge? What if? Well, how would I know how God sees them and how would I know how they are seen in the Spirit unless I'm in the Spirit too? But our idea of being in the Spirit is you got to die. This is how convoluted deception has created thought processes. By the way, let me, let me take, remember that point because I brought you names up. It's your responsibility. Remember where I left off. If you get acknowledged, you get work. So, what we're doing, let me keep an eye on the time. Uh, if you've been following us on our Facebook page, if not, I hope you do, but we've been putting out definitions. How many of you read any of those definitions? Three people? <laughs> Guys, you've got to get on. Because what's happening is this. Remember what I said last week. What we do is we have this 5,000 piece puzzle without a picture. We find one piece and we build our whole theology on it. I ask this often of people. Because they'll ask me questions and I get that. I want that. I said, have you studied this? No, it's because it says it here and, and I, you know, and it, it's there. I said, I understand it's there, but have you studied that? And, and what I mean, have you understood it in the context of who said it, why they said it, when they said it, and how does it relate to other things that have been said? Because you have to have the picture before you can elevate one piece to the picture of the puzzle. So we all get one piece or two pieces and we think we got it. But in fact, all you have is something that is still a mystery. The mystery is revealed by the Spirit of God and then the pieces fit in. 
So what we've been defining are pieces. Salvation is being defined. The kingdom of God is the realm of our awareness of our oneness with the Father. Salvation is now participating in Jesus Christ, participating in His relationship with the Father. I don't have a relationship with the Father. I can never have one. But I am invited into His relationship with the Father. That's why it's His faith. Come on! That's why I am seated in heavenly places and that I am in Christ because I am participating in Him. In that, I have a relationship with the Father, but it is through the Son. That makes sense. So repentance is another definition. Go, yeah, I'm not even going to give you all the other ones. You've got to go read them. And like them. And share them. And give me some kudos in the process. I'm only kidding. No, I'm not. No, no, go back. Why? Because repentance is a decisive decision. It's being decisive to change your thought pattern so that your awareness and your behavior changes. That's repentance according. Now, if you read Miriam, uh, the Webster Dictionary, that's not what you're going to get. What you're going to get is a 21st century variation or 20th century variation of what repentance has become or, or, or has evolved to, which is begging God to forgive you. Groveling before God. That's not repentance. Now, godly sorrow which may look like that, leads to... But, but it also says that good, the goodness of God leads you to repentance. That just having a revelation of His goodness will cause me to be decisive on how I think so that I can come into a place and now allow truth to direct my path. Amen. When I repent... Oh, there we go. Where was I? Yeah, about looking at people... Oh, in this book. Good, Chris. You did good. Okay, you get a prize. You get a prize. What if we actually had a heart of repentance continually? Saying, Lord, I want to change the way I think. That you will actually evolve and understand the fact that you are spirit. Slow down to visibility. Your visibility dimension is what we call the flesh. But your spirit. Your soul is the seat of how you relate to that realm emotionally. Right? It's the soul of man. It's, 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 where, it's where we have feelings. My physical body has a brain. My, my soul has, has, has a mind, but my spirit has a conscience. And all of this has been made alive unto God in Christ. All of it. That you are already known a certain way based on you being a spirit. Your flesh has to be dealt with as well as your soul. So you have to put off the old man and put on the new. Right? Put off the old man not the old spirit. Why am I saying all this? Because this should posture you and I in, in, in a direction towards God where my intimacy, my prayer life, my engagement of God 
changes profoundly where I'm not using faith per se to get stuff, but I'm actually living in a realm of reality that is, that is the anchor of my understanding so that I, uh, come on, Jesus is the perfect example. Jesus is a man anchored in who He is. You never, uh, you never see Jesus asking in prayer for the stuff that we ask for in prayer. In fact, on the opposite, He says, why are you even praying like that? What, is worrying going to add anything? Could it, will it add a cubit to you? Come on! Jesus is saying, don't you understand? You need to seek the kingdom. What is the kingdom? The realm of awareness of our oneness with the Father. If you only knew how one you were in union with the Father through me, you would realize that one, you never have a need. Lot doesn't even manifest into the realm of need. Paul says it's like that all of your needs are met according to what? The way you pray? How holy you are? How long you fast? According to what? His riches where? Where's the glory? It's in the Holy of Holies. Where are you? In the Holy of Holies. Come on. In John 17, He brought you out from the outer court and He brought you into the Holy of Holies and He's been dancing with you ever since. But you are so constrained dimensionally to the fleshly realm that you have no concept of how much He loves you. That once you embrace the love of God and the dance that He has with you, you'll begin to live in the outer court based on the reality of the holy place. What we do is we're in the outer court asking God who's in the holy place to help us. And He's saying, what are you doing out there? You're in here that you would be known as you are. So I'm no longer going to deal with people according to the flesh. Father, help me with this. In fact, it's impossible without the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is going to show me who, who Chris and Rebecca are in the Spirit. In fact, the Lord is going to show me how they are known to the Father so that I would know them the same way. What if we dealt with people? I'm not talking about just Christians. What if we dealt with everyone on the premise that they are known by the Father? And if they are known by the Father, what if that love that constrains us causes me to have behavior towards them in that light? Wow. Wow. This is so far beyond in my imagination. But but these are the things we hope for. Right? So, let me just... Let me just... Let me just... Let me just... And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Just, just if you write in your Bible, that word sea is the same word in Chronicles used for the laver, for the washing of sins. Now, you, it's called the sea. It's called that. Go look at it. Do the study. Why is there no more laver for the washing of sins? Because the Lamb has come who took away the sins of the world. The issue of sin has been resolved. What is, the outstanding issue is your faith in Christ or not? Am I in? 
And if I believe in Him, am I sharing in His relationship with the Father? That's the determining factor of my reality. If I am in Christ, then I have all of that. I am perfected in my spirit. But my flesh, my mind, the way I think, the way I therefore behave, the way I interact with people, all this stuff is subject to faith and patience. Ah, Sometimes I just want to help God with some of that stuff. Actually, when I do, it makes it worse. Listen, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man. Now, if your eschatology puts that on the other side of an Antichrist Armageddon scenario, and you keep buying John Hagee's books, I'm going to call it, listen, start, listen, we, 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 sorry if you get offended with this stuff, but we of positions of influence actually issue information that is not right, not correct. What happened to all the blood moons? Oh, you're going to get me, why'd you put me on this soapbox? All of a sudden, no one's talking about them anymore. But you wrote, you, you wrote the million dollar book. And we, because we're gullible, we buy that stuff. And then nothing happens. Nobody goes back and says, I was wrong. I would give them so much credit. And they said, listen, I think we missed it. Maybe you'll never hear it because they're waiting to write the next book. I'm going to have to edit this one. <laughs> Sorry, that just came out. That was a little bit... Un- <laughs> and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Listen, Emmanuel. It is not you with God. It is not you going to heaven. It is God with you. It is you in heaven now. Come on. This is the gospel. This is awesome. He says, Behold, I saw a new... Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them. And they shall be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. And He goes on to describe the city. Twelve furloughs long. Twelve furloughs deep. Or twelve thousand furloughs long. Deep in what? What is He describing? The Holy of Holies. But no longer is it small. It is the size where a community of redemption, of community of redeemed people can ah, cohabitate with the glory of God. It says in that city there's no need of light. Because God Himself is present. Out of that city flows a river of life. On either side is what? Come on, the tree of life. Right? The tree of life. What were those angels guarding? The tree of life is no longer being protected from us. We have access. This is not in the future. I'm here to announce to you this day. This is a reality of the very present realm. This is because Jesus said on the cross, It is finished. He meant it. What we have ah, worked so hard is to move all this stuff in places where I don't have to come to terms with it, so I'm just going to live a meek life and just ask God to help me whenever I need help. I'm going to stay in the outer court. Folks, I'm telling you right now, if you're in the outer court trying to have a relationship with God, it just ain't going to work. In fact, if you're in the holy place trying to have a relationship with God, all you're going to find is trying to get good works to get you what you can only get by entering in the veil. Or through the veil. I can get into Hebrews. I can get into so much of this stuff. But, 
He said this. Verse chapter 22, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water, of life, clear as, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne and from the land. In the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, and each tree yielding its fruit every month. And the, so, so this is still within the dimension of time. We think heaven is outside of time. It's not. It's just that death isn't ruling in time. But if a tree produces certain fruit every month, then months still exist. Are you seeing this? So, so we have this, again, Elysium concept of heaven. All of a sudden we're just spirits floating in some cloud playing a harp with a really thick diaper. And somehow that looks attractive to people. And all you're going to do is sing hymns for eternity. My goodness! Come on, I'm going to be honest with you. I already spilled my gun. That's boring! That's not what it is. It's dynamic. And not only is it dynamic... It goes on and it says this. He says, and the leaves of the tree were for what? The healing of the nations. There are still nations. There are still nations that need to be healed. That as a child of God, as being in Christ, you are an agent of redemption for all of creation. And they shall, and, and there shall be no more curse. Huh. Come on. Let me tell you something here. People, I get, but this, is, this doesn't seem like it's been manifest. It doesn't seem like real. I get that. But in Ephesians, it talks about us being perfected. And that there's a process that we come into the full measure of the statue of Christ. When you come into the full measure of the statue of Christ, you'll start to see the manifestation. The manifestation is not subject to some specific time on a calendar as much as it is the maturity of the Ecclesia. I'm convinced of this more than ever. That God, we're no longer should be waiting on God. God is waiting on us. Does that make sense? So Lord, let, let me not be the one who's slowing anything down. I think I need to apologize to John Hagee for some reason. I feel bad. I think you guys are like... Listen, I will see him in the spirit the way he should be seen. See, that, that I, should have, I should have caught myself on that one. But what I, my point with that, my point with that, and here I go, I'm going to go back into this stuff, is that so much stuff is written and so much stuff is consumed within the genre of Christian, Christianity that we just assume if you have a title at the end of your name or you have a large platform or you have a large church or you have many other books that all of a sudden what you, you're saying must be true. Listen, test everything. Test this. Test this. Test everything. Don't assume what people say is always true. Test it all. Question everything. God loves questions. I can tell you that firsthand. And there will be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. There's the community of redemption. And there shall be no night there. There's no need of lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives that light, and they shall reign forever and ever. I got other things I want to say here, but I'm going to hold up. 
there are times I'll come into a Sunday and I'll have a clear direction of what the Holy Spirit would have me say. And it's typically Saturday night, Sunday morning, most of the time it's Sunday morning. To walking in this door, these doors here today, I had no idea what I was going to say to say. But but I've been there and I said, Lord, I know you want to release something. I know there's something you want to say to these people on this day. And I know it has to do with your love story. And words escape me to express with the full description that is in my, my mind on how deeply God loves every single one of you. Deeply. Deeply. That your healing of whatever, could be physical, could be emotional, could be whatever, your healing is not just somebody laying their hand on you. Or just somebody prophesying. Those are good. That's there. But the greatest healing you could ever expect, ever uh, experience, is because you just collided with God's love. It happened with the woman by the well. Sleeping with every man in that town. Jesus doesn't condemn her. Jesus doesn't use fear tactics like you're going to burn in hell. He doesn't use any of that stuff. He simply says, I know who you are. And I love you in spite of the things you think about yourself that are not in alignment with how I think about you. I want you to know that. And she starts to change how she's, she's guarded, right? She's not saying anything. And then she, she goes, oh, he must be a prophet. He knows that I've been doing all these things. And he goes, the man you're with right now, it's not even your husband. And he doesn't condemn her. We condemn everybody. We condemn everybody. And he says, there's something I want to give you. Whenever you confront God's love, there's always something to take away. He says, you came for a well with your pot. You want to fill your pot with the water in that well. Leave your pot here. Take the well. We come to God for a portion. Remember the song, Fill My Cup, O Lord? Fill it up. That comes from a depraved mentality of what you think God is, who you think God is, and what He has for you. That, oh, I can, and I've heard this. If I'll just give you a thimble. Just give me a cup. Why? Because, you know, I just want my little cabin in the corner. Come on, some of you know what I'm talking about. In the corner of, of eternity. I just don't want to bother anybody. Because I'm just going to make it in by the skin, my teeth, and just, just, here's a thimble. You came here with a bucket. I'm giving you a well. And by the way, once you taste of this water, you will never, ever thirst again. I feel as if we are, we've been wading in waters 
And we're just about to cross into the realm where the continental shelf just drops off. You know the Florida landscape. If not, go look at a map. You can go out, I think, 50 miles, maybe even more, and still be in relatively shallow water. Right, Ray? And then you hit a place where everything drops off. I feel strongly that the Lord is saying, the more you trust me, and the more you're allowing what's below you not to support your swimming, because I will bring you into the depth of my love. And I will show you things that you know not of. Not only will you know yourself as you are already known. My prayer is, Father, I want you to tell me how you know me. I come back. Lynn, I'm so glad you're here. And I come back. Bill would know this. Those when we did the encounters. It was T.D. Jakes' clip during your session. That thing always, always, as many as we've done, we did, we did hundreds of encounters. We played that thing a hundred times. And every time it got to the place where the son is talking about the father who just killed himself, his question was what? Dad, you didn't tell me who I am. Remember, I, get, I get goosebumps saying that right now. And here's an earthly story of expressing what the father wants us to... You, don't, you are not who you are only by what you do. What you do is largely a contamination of your identity. If you are, if you are as you are known, then my prayer for me and for you is, Lord, show me how you see David. Because I want to see him the same way. And repentance will cause me to engage that. See, if you think repentance is only relegated to sin, you'll never get there. But repentance is the change of mind on any subject. When it says repent of sin, it's talking about that. But it could be repenting of drinking from coffee. It could be repenting of whatever. It's a change of thought. It's metanoia. I'm not thinking that way anymore. I'm thinking a different way. Therefore, my behavior and my awareness is shifting towards that way of thinking. I'm going to see David by the Spirit. I'm going to see Christy by the Spirit. And therefore, I'm going to engage that in my behavior. Uh, can I end with this? Can we get ready for communion? Jesus said this, I saw Satan fall. Right? I, I, I'll, I'll develop this a little bit more maybe in the weeks ago. But he said this, I saw, him, I saw him fall to the earth. Where? From the realm of the heavens. Right? We, we developed this a while back where Satan is no longer in the courts of God accusing you. He can't be. He's not there. He was cast out. In Revelation, it says he was cast out. Right? My point is this. If he is no longer in the heavenly realm, and you have been brought into a dance with the Father in the heavenly realm, no weapon can prosper because it is not present. The only place it is present, it is in the realm of the natural and in your thinking. In the realm of the natural in your thinking, the enemy can play all kinds of tricks to deceive you. Even to the point where you have a physiological effect of blood chemistry that is responding to the accusation. 
But the more that I ascend into the heavenly realm where I am already seated, He's not there. That is why Jesus said, speaking of the enemy, He has nothing in me. If He had nothing in Him, then death itself could not dictate Jesus' days. Right? Are you following this? If death cannot dictate Jesus' days, because the enemy has nothing in him, and the death came from, I mean, I don't have to go through all this again, but death came from the curse, the curse came from all this stuff. We went through Genesis 3. Then the only way he can experience death is if he lays his life down. He actually has to cause his heart to stop. When he said, Father, I commend my spirit to you, he is actually causing his body to die. Right? Who killed Jesus? Jesus. No, and he expired on his own accord in obedience to what he's about to do. The Romans didn't kill him. The Jews didn't kill him. It even says this, Paul says, had they known they were going to crucify the Lord of glory, they wouldn't have done it. Because they couldn't have done it. Right? He lays his life down. In doing so, he had become sin. Everything that you ever did, will do, are doing, was in him, in that process. He laid his life down. Death had no authority in him. He was raised on the third day by the Spirit that was in the Holy of Holies. There's something interesting about the tomb in which he was raised. Joseph of Arimathea, and there are those who are close to them, to him. Uh, why would Jesus use a tomb of a very wealthy man? Joseph of Arimathea was a very, very wealthy man. And he borrowed the tomb because he was only going to use it for three days. But when you died in that time, they honored your bones. They would put you in these boxes and stuff. It's not like what we do today. They honored the dead, even the corpse, and how they, they would dig them up and put their bones in. And, and most, if you were poor, you were in the potter's field. And if you were of average, middle class, you had a tomb that you had to go get that was just enough for yourself. But Joseph of Arimathea had a tomb for an entire family. Because he was wealthy. So Jesus says, I'm not only going in that tomb, but I'm taking a family with me. If you, now come on now. If you only understood that you died with him, that you were in the tomb with him. I understand in time and space that don't make sense, but I'm not appealing to your dimensional and our dimensional insufficiency. I'm appealing to the Spirit that if you died with him, you were also raised with him. And the life that I am now living in the Holy of Holies, I am living by his faith in a dance with the Father. From that posture. I am to announce the good news to the world. Oh, this is good. 
This really is good, Justin. I feel so inadequate often, very, very often. Mondays, it's typically a day I feel so inadequate that I just didn't have the right words. There are times I wake up and I'm like, Lord, it's just, it's just, there's just too much here. I'm not conveying it right. And I'll often get some just, don't worry about how the seed produces what it produces. Just sow it. Yes. Yes. Just being honest with you. Yes. Yeah. You close your eyes. Father, I ask you at this point, I can hear that young man crying out in so much anguish that his father just killed himself and he yells at the top of his voice, Father, why didn't you tell me who I am? I can hear that resonating in the hearts of so many people on this planet. They're lost not only because they're doing bad things, they're lost because they don't know who they are. And they have not heard the voice of the Father. Jesus, you said that no one knows the Father except the Son. And no one knows the Son except the Father. But you said that in Matthew 11. And Paul picks that up. John picks it up where he says that as he is, so are we in this world. So we know the Father. And the Father knows us. I pray as we walk into this phase of understanding that we will come to terms with knowing ourselves as we are already known. And in that, Father, in that, I say on this day that every thought that is inconsistent with the thought you have towards us be ejected from our mindset. Father, I pray, God, that the deception of self-hatred, that the deception of hopelessness, that the deception of thinking, Father, often, People don't like us, don't like me, don't like you. These things are ejected. There was a place where Jesus would leave and he would go into that secret place where it was just him and daddy. And I pray, Father, everyone here would have a secret place. which was just them and daddy. In that place, let them know as they are already known. And I pray, Father, that our children and our children's children would begin to rise up with such confidence in Your love, such an awareness of Your presence, such an understanding of what Jesus had accomplished, that the things that we have to spend weeks and months and years of undoing, they will begin to see the newness of life and to exist in new creation and to accelerate the maturity of the Ecclesia. That, Father, we would see these things happen shortly. So I bless them in Jesus' name. 
And I bless all under the sound of my voice in Jesus' name. I bless their minds to be protected, their hearts to be guarded, their souls to just be overwhelmed by your peace and your love. That the households that are represented in this house will be safe havens of your peace. The people would flock to them, not because of the material things inside, but because of the love that is so present. I pray that for even this house. Lord, even as I'm praying right now, I pray for our friends who are leaving for Houston today. I ask everybody to just stretch your hands out towards these folks right here. Jesus, You said when one person in the body hurts, the entire body hurts. I, I believe, I'm sensing that even as it relates to the family of this nation. They go back, Father, to a region that is that's just simply hurting. People will... Experience, Father, anger and frustration and disillusionment. Some, Father, may even think that taking their life is a better option than trying to press through this season. And I ask You, Father, through them, that life, God, would begin to emerge in such great measure that You would lead them to those, God, whose mindsets are now being vulnerable and being shaken by darkness and deception. And they would be the harbingers. They'd be the carriers of life, Father. There are only four, God, but I know four can multiply. And Your Word multiplies very quickly, God. So I ask You for a measure of grace, God, that is that is consistent with what is taking place in the Houston area in eastern Texas, that these four, among many others who have been commissioned to that region, would be light in darkness, would be life amongst death, and that whatever they lay their hands to, that was destined to die, shall live and grow strong. And Father, that there would be, God, a resurgence of life through Christ in this region. That in years to come, what was the weakest may may become the strongest. What was the last may be first. What was discarded in the minds of many may become the model in the hearts of all. I pray for this region that in the midst of catastrophe, the love of God will rise up and be strong in the hearts and in the minds of all of your children. I pray for the miraculous anointings to take place. I pray, God, the authority of a voice that is consistent with your heart to cause things that are naturally impossible to become possible. I pray, God, that even at their voice, God, mold and mildew and destruction and decay will be ah, will be pushed back all the way to Adam. And life will come forth in Jesus' name. I ask you for your traveling mercies on them. I know we've already, Jim, prayed that and we come into agreement with that. But Father, in the 14 hours or 18 hours or however many hours it takes from getting from here to there, that in that period of time, You would reveal Your ways to each and every one. That when they arrive, they don't arrive in confusion, but with they they arrive with an understanding of what to do and when to do it in Jesus' name. To release that into them right now. I love that you've got Texas on your shirt. 